God has spoken through creation and the continued revelation that we sang up there. Very important. And as we begin this new series today, there is another way that God has, in effect, in one sense, um, made his presence aware, and that is that he has given in each of us a ability to judge things morally. That is really a part of, as the Bible talks about, being made in his image. Certainly God, in a perfect sense, is able to judge morality. And then um, he, he defines morality, excuse me. Um, and he is able, above, beyond what we can do, to know what is right or wrong. But it gives us a tool to be able to do that as well. And that is our conscience. I will say as we begin this new year, um, certainly the study on worship was a, I hope it was a help to you. It was a great help to me in the, in the fact of being reminded of truths that I have been aware of for a while, but always, always good to be reminded of the priority of worship. It was a great help for me personally, but I will say this study, as the Lord has led me to this, has um, been a a great help as far as gaining even further knowledge. I think uh, when we come to the conscience, we all know that we have one, but we really don't understand it in the way that we should. And I have found in studying some of the passages that we're going to be going through together, um, we're going to be looking at a lot of passages this morning, but our main passage is going to be Romans 14 verses one through four. So you can turn there. I have learned much and have benefited much and continue to from this study. And so I'm looking forward uh, to this. Um, it, it, is, it is, the conscience is something that God has given to us that is a very important gift that we many times take for granted. I think sometimes because we misunderstand what it is and how it functions within us. The Greek word for conscience is synodesis. Um, And um, it is found multiple times in the New Testament. The concept of the conscience isn't as apparent in the Old Testament, uh, but it is still there as it talks about the heart being discerning and discerning between right and wrong. But really, in the New Testament is where we see this word for conscience. And again, we all know that we have one, right? Question is, is it guided in the right way? Is, is it under the control of the spirit? And in our culture today, I think we understand this, the conscience is a very misunderstood issue. But even in Christianity, because of some of the cultural concepts, um, we can have great misunderstanding. So let me just point out a couple that I think might be obvious, but let's just be clear on this when it comes to the conscience. Um, that whole thing, I think there's a lot of times in cartoons, but maybe in fiction and things about the conscience and having two um, people, one on either side of you, the shoulder angel and the shoulder demon. And the shoulder angel talks to you and says, you shouldn't do that. And the shoulder demon says, usually in the cartoons with some sort of pitchfork and the horns and everything, no, just go ahead and do that. Well, uh, that may make for some dramatic fiction and and, um, drama as far as 
entertainment goes, but folks, that is fictional. <laughs> there is nothing biblical about that um, description or realization of the conscience, nor is the conscience this. I think we all understand this, but the conscience is not a singing cricket hired by a magic fairy to help a puppet, okay? Um, we, we know these things, right? At the same time, though, because they're in our culture, sometimes these still kind of um, twist our thinking when it comes to conscience. So I hope that both of those are not ways that you view the conscience. It is a vital part of our being, folks, and Scripture makes that clear, and it must be understood and reckoned with, certainly illustration reminding me of my car. I've used this before, but it certainly, again, is appropriate for this um, topic today. In my Buick, very thankful for the Buick that I have. Don't drive it as much as our Honda van, but it was given to me by my grandmother after my grandfather's death. It was his car and um, has been very reliable for me as a second car over the years. But more recently, I've had a, a pretty major problem and that is the fuel gauge doesn't work the way that it used to. And so I'm never quite sure um, if I'm on half a tank, full tank, or empty. In fact, it reminds me how frustrating it is when I do fill it up all the way. I'll get into the car many times, shut the door, start the engine, and immediately the needle will go whoop, down to empty and ding, ding, like you need to fill it up. Oh, it just drives me crazy. So I have to keep careful um, evaluation on how many miles I've driven, things like that. But I know that there's a problem with that fuel gauge. I also know it's going to be very expensive to fix, so I put it off and do the best that I can. But you know what? After a while, I can just kind of ignore it and forget about it because I don't really find it that reliable. And folks, um, we can do that with our conscience, we can get to the point where we misunderstand and maybe we just don't think the conscience is saying something to us and we need to listen to it. But many times we think, no, that that can't be. I, I must I, I just must be too sensitive in that area and I'm just going to continue on. And there are multiple reasons why many times we tend to ignore our conscience. And that's not the right conclusion that we should come to with this very valuable tool. It's not to be ignored. Um, there are many. Definitions that I could give of the conscience. Certainly, the conscience um, directs us into what is right and what is wrong. There is um, some guys, one in particular that I know, authors that have written a book on the conscience, and I like their definition of the conscience. They said, The conscience is your consciousness of what you believe is right or wrong by Nacelli and Crawley. And what you believe is very important with that. And I'll get back to that in just a minute. What does the conscience do if it's so important? Three things to think of this morning. The conscience, number one, bears witness. It testifies. And again, we're just going to go through some scripture here very quickly, even before, as introduction to this. But Romans chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 mentions that everyone has a conscience, whether one is a believer or an unbeliever. Unbelievers have a conscience as well. 
For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Even with unbelievers, God has put something in them to be able to measure, even though in a twisted and flawed way, most certainly, right and wrong, may be broken, but it's still there, and it bears witness. It testifies. Certainly for the Christian, Romans 9.1, Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul, and we as believers, have a conscience that is guided, directed by the Spirit. And so Paul says that I can give an oath that I am telling the truth because my conscience is clear that, yes, I'm doing this, and my conscience is under the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. So I know it's right. The conscience bears witness. It gives testimony. Number two. It makes judgments and determinations, and not always correct judgments and determinations about other people, especially. Paul has to warn us about this. 1 Corinthians 10, 29, or start of verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? We tend to judge and make determinations about other people based on our conscience. Um, That's, and we're going to see as we continue in this study, that's not always best. And we can can, um, find ourselves in the wrong by doing that many times, but that's what a conscience does. One that shows us, judges what's right and wrong is certainly going to make value judgments on other people as well. We just can't know the heart the way that God does, obviously. So we have to be careful with that, but it does do that. Number three, it leads one to act in a certain way. Um, In the area of obeying human government, Romans 13, 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. My conscience leads me to obey my authorities that God has placed over me because of what I know from Scripture, a Scripture-guided content. It leads me to act in a certain way. You could say the same thing about that Scripture I just read in 1 Corinthians 10.28. If someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, that my conscience will lead me to be deferent, to to defer to one who has a weaker conscience. It will lead me to do something. These three things are scripturally what the conscience does. And as we're going to continue to see here, we're going to... be continuing to look at what the Bible says about the conscience. There's a lot of data, and I can't include all of that in one message. So if we get to a question about conscience that you have, I'm pretty assured that in the next few weeks as we continue to go through this, it will be answered. But the biblical data that we have on the conscience leads us to two important principles of the conscience. Number one, 
Your conscience should be obeyed. Well, actually, that's technically number two. I'll get, I'll explain that in just a minute. First Corinthians 9, 9 through 13 gives us information on that. Um, but we'll just skip to verse 12. First Corinthians 9, verse 12. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if my food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Sinning against one's conscience is, is wrong, and we shouldn't do that. Your conscience should be obeyed. That's number two, but the most important one, and I know we would all agree with this, is ultimately God is Lord over our conscience. Do we have situations where our conscience is not accurate and God's word says you need to change it? I'll give you one uh, very clear example. Remember in Acts 10, where God sent the sheet of animals to Peter? And verse 13, there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean, a conscience issue where Peter says, I can't do this, Lord. And God says, yes, you can, because I'm Lord over the conscience. The voice came to him once again, second time, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Most important, God is Lord over the conscience, but the conscience must be obeyed, should be obeyed. Martin Luther made a very clear, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And we're going to continue to talk about how um, we can calibrate our conscience to be under the guidance, to be as accurate as it, it can be, unlike the fuel gauge in my Buick. We don't want to settle for a broken conscience, right? We want to make sure it's calibrated. We want to make sure it's accurate. We're going to talk about that. But one of the main focuses that I want to focus on through this series is this, and this is what is addressed in Romans 14 and 15. Everyone has different sensitivities in their conscience, or let me put it this way, different combinations of sensitivities. There is not a one of us here who has, um, in being guided by the Holy Spirit, the exact same combination of sensitivities and concerns in their conscience that another person does. That's why we're unique. God, and we're going to see this throughout this study as well, that God may call one person to have a sensitivity towards something that he doesn't want another person to have, but the church can learn through those sensitivities. And if that's the case, then, if everyone has different sensitivities in their conscience, how can we have any unity in the church at all? And that's what Paul is addressing in Romans 14 through 15. We're going to continue to look through some different passages of Scripture, but this is an introduction as well to the conscience and to what Romans 14 has to say. We're going to be looking at the first four verses this morning. And the title today is Welcoming Each Other in Unity. Let's read the first four verses. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Father, such an important topic, and I'm thankful that you've stressed this in my own life and given me understanding that I did not have before on this issue, an understanding in these passages that Lord, as, as I studied, I began to see are controversial, are, are interpreted in many different ways. And Father, what we ask for today is that you would make it clear to us how you want us to understand these passages from Romans 14 and 15, and even as we move on to these chapters of 1 Corinthians 8 and others, that you would make it clear to us issues of conscience, and how we are supposed to operate in unity. Father, it is clear that Paul's concern is in the midst of these legitimate conscience sensitivities that God's people still must be able to worship and serve together in unity. And we must do that. So make it clear how we can do that and help us to be willing then to submit to you, the Lord of our conscience, and that our conscience would be correctly calibrated, that we would know how to act in every situation. And yet, Father, we know that you call each of us to different sensitivities with that conscience, and that's good and helpful, and we can all be instructed by those things, but help us at the same time to be in unity together as your expectation is as well. And give us understanding on how that takes place. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Paul begins the chapter with these first four verses, focusing on the importance of welcoming each other as the church in unity. First couple verses here, Paul makes it clear that we are to welcome in unity regardless of sensitivities. I'll expand that. Regardless of individual conscience sensitivities, we need to be able to be in unity together. In verse 1, we're going to see that we need to welcome the church brethren warmly as we meet together. Let's look at this more closely. Verse 1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. First of all, let's understand who are these weak in faith that it's talking about. Uh, and folks, as I mentioned even in my prayer, there, as I studied this, and I listened to uh, many men that I respect and just getting different interpretations and even reading on this, there are a lot of interpretations <laughs> about Romans 14. I, I didn't really realize before I really started studying this how many different opinions there are about the conscience. It really is remarkable. And even this idea of who the one is who's weak and who is strong. And my prayer is that God has uh, led me to be accurate with this. But I want you to see this as well, that I'm, I'm going straight from the context of the passage. Sometimes uh, interpreters get um, 
off on some things because they add things in that just really aren't a part of the passage. And I don't want to do that. So what is, who is this person who is weak in faith? Well, Paul is not referring here to one who is shallow in their faith in the gospel. Let's be clear on that. Not someone who is struggling over the um, truths of the gospel or having a struggle believing in the gospel. When it says faith, many times faith can represent faith in the gospel in scriptures. That's not this issue here. One who is weak in the faith is actually in context those who have a conscience sensitivity in, in, individual, in areas of individual outworking of their faith. Douglas Moo, a commentator, said this, their convictions about what that faith allows and prohibits, the weak in this chapter that Paul is referring to here is one who has a conscience sensitivity to what their faith, what the outgrowth of their faith can allow them to do and what they're not allowed to do. And before we're, we start figuring out whether we're the weak or the strong, Let's have this understanding, folks. We are both. We are the weak brother in some areas. We are the strong brother in other areas. That goes back to God gives in our conscience different sensitivities. Each of us in this room has a sensitivity towards something that you would say, I cannot be involved in because my conscience won't allow me to do that. And yet the strong would say, I've and we'll get into this more. I don't want to give everything away. But I've prayed, I've studied this out, and I don't have a conscience sensitivity over this. And each of us are weak or strong, depending on the issue. So don't get too uh, prideful or arrogant thinking that you're always a strong. No, um, this situation can happen in each of us. One person is, is the weak, another is the strong. And this here, um, Paul will continue, and he's describing differences here between the weakest strong members, and he will give further information about how to deal with those in a few minutes. But there's something else that we need to understand here, and that is, what are the extent of these differences addressed here that provide fodder at the end of this verse that says, for quarreling and disputing over opinions? Now, Paul's going to give us a few examples here. But he obviously intends not for us just to hang on these few examples, but there's a broader ramification of these examples that he gives. And I think it's helpful then in figuring out what these issues are. I've already described them as conscience issues. Let's get be clear what Paul is not referring to here. And I think you can divide these issues up into what I've done is four issues. I think this is the more helpful. Others divide these up into three issues, and they describe them different ways. And I think this dividing up into four issues here, four categories will be most helpful. Paul is not referring in this first verse or throughout this um, passage then. In God, he's not referring to gospel issues, number one. And that is, Paul is not saying someone who is weak is someone who is struggling with the truths of the gospel. Let's be clear on that. Or the strong. How can I say that? 
because Paul wouldn't call the strong person to welcome the weak person if the person's even struggling, whether they're a Christian or not, right? And actually, when we go through this and we see Paul's teaching in Galatians, Paul makes it clear in regards to the gospel that those that take issue with gospel truths are are not even believers. Paul's very strong in his language. He says those folks are accursed. They're not even believers. They're condemned. And so I want to be clear at the beginning of this so we understand we're not talking about someone who struggles with the gospel because that would mean if they're rejecting part of the gospel, they're not even a believer at all. Does that make sense? That's not what Paul's talking about here, issues of the gospel. Number two, Paul is also also not referring to moral issues here. And what I'm describing as these moral issues are actions and attitudes that um, the Bible clearly states as sin, regardless of what a person may think. There may be someone who is contemplating murdering another individual. Whether they think they are uh, appropriate in that or not, God's word, the Ten Commandments, are clear. Do not murder. There may be somebody who's contemplating stealing something. And God's word makes it clear about stealing, about coveting, many of these things. So Paul is not referring here to someone who's weak, saying, I don't think I have to follow that clear moral commandment in God's word. And the strong says, um, or the, the, the weak says, I have to follow that. And the strong says, well, no, you don't. That's not at all what we're talking about here when it comes to these moral issues. That's clear. We have to follow God's clear principles, what he states is sin. That's not an issue in this issue, in this example of the strong versus the weak. Let me go a little bit further on this. Not just clear biblical commandments, but I want to throw in this as well. We can include biblical conclusions, and I'll describe it this way. What do I mean by that? Biblical conclusions are issues that may not explicitly be stated as sin in Scripture, but that biblical evidence and principles make it clear are wrong. Now, you might think, well, Pastor Brock, what would those issues be? Well, I'll just give you a few here, just so we're on the same page. Issues, you won't find a verse on issues like abortion, slavery, or as mentioned even in the, in the Sunday school presentation this morning, polygamy, more than, than one wife. You might say, well, Pastor Brock, with abortion, there's thou shalt not kill. But if you talk to some of those folks that unfortunately um, are not pro-life in their thinking, they would just say yes, but the, uh, the uh, fetus in the womb is not a person, and therefore it's not disobeying the commandment. So on a technicality, someone could say there's not a verse on abortion, or there's not a verse that says specifically, thou shalt not have a slave or thou shalt not have more than one wife. In fact, we have examples in the Old Testament many times of men who had more than one wives, more than one wife. And even in our in cultures today, it's something that's not necessarily looked on as a bad thing. But folks, for those that understand God's word, all of these issues, we have all, we can all say heartily that we understand that these things are wrong. 
no one here is going to argue that abortion is wrong. There's plenty of evidence. It's very clear in scripture that it's wrong, that taking the life of the innocent, the unborn. Also, slavery, God's word makes it clear. He rescued his people from slavery in Egypt. Paul is very clear on his intentions uh, in the book of Philemon about slavery and about a master's um, response toward a slave and freeing him. And polygamy is clear in God's word, that God intends for it to be one man and one woman for a lifetime, right? So biblical conclusions are clear, and this as well is not what Paul is referring to when he's talking about the struggle between the weak and the strong. Does that make sense? Okay. There's a third one, though, and this is important, too. He's not referring here to denominational issues. Let me just give you an example. Speaking in tongues and infant baptism are a few of denominational differences. If I had a guest speaker come up while I was away one time, and the speaker just started, he decided that he would give you a lesson in speaking in tongues and started to do that. You all at this, at this ministry would be really bothered by that because it would not be appropriate. We, would, we, because of our understanding of Scripture, we know that tongues, although legitimate at the time of the early church, that we are convinced that today is not a gift that God uses in the church today. And that would keep us from being able to worship with those who do speak in tongues. If somebody came up to me and said, I'd like my little baby that was just born, I'd like them to be sprinkled and baptized. Well, I'd have to explain to them that's not, uh, is a difference that I, in my conscience, I'm convinced by the very Greek word baptism that it means immerse, that I can't do that. And if that person is offended and bothered by that, I'd have to say, we can't do that here at this ministry. I'm convinced that's not right. And they'd have to find another church ministry. Denominational differences, issues are important. So Paul here as well is not referring to what I'll call denominational issues in some of these areas that clearly, remember, even Paul and Barnabas, for a scriptural reference here, had a point where they had to divide because of an issue where they could no longer minister together. They had to divide and minister separately over John Mark. And it's never made clear to us that Barnabas and Paul ever ministered together again. And yet they were both had, they had ministry, um, but they weren't able to, to minister together and, and work together because of that issue. Some of these other issues are that I have explained are issues that would not allow a church congregation to worship together in unity. So gospel issues, moral issues, denominational issues, all of those are not described here in this passage. Well, what are these issues then that we are not to quarrel over opinions, but to welcome each other? lovingly. These are what I'll call number four, perception issues, or you could say issues of conscience, disputable issues. Let me describe them this way. 
These are individual sensitivities of conscience, which are found in unique combinations with each believer, but should not affect the unity of the local church. And there, folks, is a broad range here that can include a whole lot of sensitivity issues, too many for me to try to list, obviously, in one message. I am going to give a few examples here because I want us to be clear about what this category looks like. But I do have to make a pastoral note as I go through some of these examples. I think we, you understand this, but just again to be clear, I do not use illustrations of current church members unless I have permission. Some of these examples that I am giving are from ministries and situations that I've been aware of in the past. Now, I don't know all of the conscience issues, even that are represented in our church family here this morning. If I light on one of those as an example, it's not with knowledge. It's not like I'm trying to bring up specifically somebody's personal conscience and highlight that publicly within our congregation here. If I mention it, uh, and, and it's something that you have a sensitivity toward, I don't know about that. Or if I do know about it, I won't mention it. We can talk about it separately. So just, so you, just in case, I think most of these illustrations for this category of conscience issues, disputable issues, um, I don't think we have a struggle here, but we might. And I'm not thinking of you when I give this illustration, okay? Let's be clear on that. All right. Let me give some illustrations on things that would be sensitive towards some folks, but not others, but that we all ought to be in unity about when we come together anyway. I just uh, made a list here of things that came to mind. One of those is working on Sunday. There are folks that still, and I think this is legitimate, when they think of the Sabbath commandment, not that we as God's people today follow the Sabbath because the Sabbath commandment was The Sabbath was for God's people, the Jewish people on a Saturday. But there is that principle that we need a day of rest. And some folks, and and the, the church today looks at the Lord's day as the first day of the week, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. We consider that the Lord's day. And many folks take that Sabbath principle and say, we still need a day of rest. And I am convinced in my conscience that I should not do work, that I should, even if I'm asked to work on a Sunday, I can't do that in my conscience. There are other folks that can. Well, the Lord allows me to go to one service, and then uh, I really, I'm going to lose my job if I don't work on a Sunday, and in my conscience, I'm able to do that. That would be just one example of conscience sensitivity issues that differ between people. Here's another one. Eating in establishments that serve alcohol. Some folks, when they go out to eat and they find out that there's any type of alcohol served at all, shy away from that. I, I'm just not comfortable giving my money toward, and, and I'm not talking about um, somebody that would just go to a place that's an obvious bar-like atmosphere where the whole thing is the, the, the um, table with the bar stools and everything. I think that's a little different, but For those that would go to a restaurant, find out that it serves alcohol and would say, I I can't be involved in that. Others, well, you know, I'm not going to drink the alcohol, Pastor Brock. It's not not even a temptation for me. And I couldn't even go out to eat hardly at all if I was trying to find a place that didn't serve any alcohol. Different conscience sensitivities on that issue. 
And both are legitimate perspectives. Here's another one. Some of these may seem a little more um, ludicrous than others, but these I, I have known people that have strong thoughts on many of these. Games with playing cards. Playing games that involve playing cards, joker, kings, queens. My grandfather told me one time, my, my mom's father, Howard Deering, that his mother had raised them that they should never play any games, including solitaire, with a pack of playing cards. And that was just something he could never do. And he actually served at Pearl Harbor after the bombing. And he was with a lot of guys that were rough and had um, had a lot of insensitivities toward things that we wouldn't. We wouldn't. But he would never touch a pack of playing cards because of that. And there are still those who have a conscience sensitivity and say that's too close to that. To me, there's a connection to gambling there. I'd just rather avoid that. There are others that say that's okay with me. I, I, it's, just, it's just solitary. I'm not gambling or other games. It's okay. Strong versus weak, different sensitivities. Certainly there is different sensitivities when it comes to entertainment choices, right? And I could go on a long list of those that I don't even have time to this morning. Some people feel comfortable and, um, and say, I am able to watch this or, or participate in this. Others say, I don't even really like to watch TV at all. I have a sensitivity toward that. I'll give you one that I struggle with. And this may make be a little bit humorous. I don't know. Um, have you ever seen these tracks that look like money, 20, sometimes $100 bills. I have a conscience sensitivity toward giving those out at a restaurant. Now, again, if some of you have done that, I don't know. And I'm not condemning you, right? Paul says I'm not allowed to. But I, from, from a printer's graphic background, there's a lot of reasons why I would never give someone that type of track. And one of those is because I know that there are federal laws that have things to say about people trying to replicate money, first of all. So I'm always a little, ah, you know what, I just wouldn't be comfortable with that. But another thing is I've known people in the past that will just give a track and not give a tip to the waitress. And what an awful testimony that would be. Well, here's a track that looks like a dollar bill. <laughs> Actually, you don't get any money at all. Folks, that's a, I hope none of you have ever done that because that really is an awful testimony. But then somebody might have one of those uh, tracks that looks like a $20 bill. Wow, what a great tipper. And they actually get to the tip and they, you know, it was, it, it was fair, five, six, seven dollars, but it wasn't the 20. I would just rather avoid all that in my conscience. I can't give those out to people. My conscience won't allow me to. Some of you may say, but Pastor Bach, I've used these and they've been very effective. Fine. Guess what my response is to you in regards to what Paul says here? I welcome you to worship together. Same as many of these others. Let me give you just a few more here, all right? How many sweets you give to kids, all right? Drinking coffee in Sunday school. I have known people that have strong opinions about that. Even celebrating Christmas, my freshman year at a Christian university. Um, we were talking, we were getting ready at the end of the semester, talking about what we were going to do at Christmas. And one of my friends, a young lady said, well, actually, my family doesn't celebrate Christmas at all. What? No, it's associated with a pagan holiday. 
and we don't even give gifts. And that just blew my mind. But she was very serious about it. And she said, we won't do that when we go home. And I'd never encountered that before. That's a sensitivity towards something, constant sensitivity. How about giving brightly colored baskets filled with candy to kids on Easter? There's a lot of opinions about that, too. I'll give you one more here, and we got to move on, right? But I just want to understand there, this is a broad category, and so we need to be careful with this. Um, bad words that we say. Uh, Pastor Reimers gave this illustration how for their family with their daughters who were very verbal, they just said, we don't want to ever have the phrase shut up used in our home. You're not allowed to say shut up to a sibling or certainly a parent. And that was just the rule. Well, the problem was, as they got out into the world, the girls would hear somebody else say shut up in the church and think literally that they were saying a curse word. It was that to that level. They were so sensitive towards that. Now, we have followed that in our home to a certain extent. And um, every so often that may still pop up. And our boys for a while were like almost treated like, wow, that's like the worst word ever when they were smaller. And we had to explain, well, there are worse words than that. Um, and uh, other words that we have said in our home, and we're not going to give you the list of what they are, but we've said we don't say those kind of words. And then they'll hear another Christian uh, say that word and be, oh, I can't believe they would say that. Well, then we have to go back and explain. It's just a constant sensitivity for our family that not everyone shares and have that understanding. Can you see? This is a broad range. These are the issues that Paul is addressing, this broad range of conscience issues in Romans 14. Does that make sense? Okay. Then let's continue on then with a little bit of time that we have left here with this. This first verse then deals with the attitude of the strong toward the weak. And Paul is saying here, the strong must not just be accepting or putting up with, but warmly welcoming one who has a conscious sensitivity that the strong person does not agree with. In the ESV, it says, welcome him. Some other translations say accept, or they seem to, I don't think they're quite as accurate. They seem to give the idea that you know, if somebody has a conscious difference than you, then just put up with them the best you can. Come on, I accept you somehow. That's not at all what the context says here. It says, warmly welcome them. You are welcome to worship with me. Come sit next to me. Let's talk. Let's fellowship. Let's worship God together. Let's not quarrel over opinions. And really, it even has in this context here that the strong must not try to dissuade the weak from the viewpoint that God has led them to. Even though, I will say, this term weak in faith, it does seem to imply that there may be room for growth, more information. That is certainly the case in 1 Corinthians. Here, to maybe a milder extent, there's still the possibility that this weak brother could grow in his faith. But the strong is not to dissuade him. The strong must fully welcome the weak one to worship together with them. That's clear, I hope, from verse 1. But verse 2, welcome despite conscience differences. Look at that, this example Paul gives. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats 
only vegetables. Here's another very common misconception that I have found in almost every commentary that I have studied. And it just shows how difficult this the interpretations are with this issue. Almost every commentary looks at this and says, oh, okay, these are Jewish Christians that have sensitivities toward eating meat versus Gentile Christians who don't have those sensitivities. And they look at the background in Jewish culture at that time. And there's a lot of scholars who have written a lot of really important sounding papers on the background between Jewish culture and the, the problems with Gentiles. Well, there's, there's really a major problem that I have in being adamant about that. Let me just ask you a question here. Um, do Jewish people eat meat? Yeah, they have restrictions, but they still eat meat. And this, what is this weak person that says here? They only eat vegetables. So this is a broader range here about someone that says, hey, everything's okay for me to eat, while the weak person says, no, I can't eat for whatever reason. I can't eat meat. And folks, I, I have run into people today. I've known people. I have friends that are very adamant about not eating meat. Um, there are some that are very adamant about what they give their kids. And they can, they can get quite strong in their, their, their um, argument to try to persuade you in that way. This is a more general thing. And yet, at the same time, we know the strong is represented here by Paul as having the more spiritually mature viewpoint, because God has made it clear, even with that illustration I gave you with Peter, we have freedom in eating, but the weak is spiritually sensitive for whatever reason toward eating meat. We all have our own unique combination of weak, strong brother issues, but folks, it should never affect our fellowship. And we should want to welcome each other warmly in desire, and really the command is here, we must, regardless. The main focus as we finish up today that Paul is giving here is conscience sensitivities are legitimate. Recognize them in others. Don't try to dissuade them. That's the Spirit's work. But most importantly, Welcome in unity, be unified with the other brethren in the church that God has called you to, regardless. That is the overwhelming emphasis that Paul has here for us and is important, especially in these conscience issues. I don't even have time this morning to get into verses three and four. We'll look at that uh, probably tonight, actually. We'll continue with this as a good start for this conversation, this uh, topic as we begin, we'll go back to this tonight. Folks, believers will have differences in conscience sensitivities. Here's the thing. It should never affect the fellowship of believers in our unity of worship. God doesn't allow that. And we have to make sure that we're willing to put those aside to be in unity together as the church that God has called us to. Lord, these are hard things. We know that Different people have different sensitivities toward different things. Lord, we know here this isn't a gospel thing. This isn't a clear moral commandment issue. This isn't even a clear 
um, denominational difference that would really uh, inhibit the unity that we need to have. But these are conscience issues and sensitivities that each of us have that are important, that you have led us to, but that at the same time should not affect our unity of fellowship and worship together. So as we continue, Father, to learn about the conscience, the importance of obeying it, but also to submit it to you and your word, that we would even understand and be more unified as a church body because of what we've learned from your word on this issue. And may we, even as we go from here, enjoy good fellowship, put these respect how you've led, and continue to be a testimony for Christ in this community. This we ask in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.